This is The Granite Beat, a podcast where we highlight New Hampshire journalists, ask them about recent stories they've published, and about what it's like to cover their corner of this small and interesting state. I'm Julie Hart, and I'm here with Adam Drapshow. Hello. Anne-Marie Timmons is a homegrown journalist. She's a New Hampshire native who reported for the Concord Monitor for 25 years. She has taught at UNH and at the Naki Loeb School of Communications and currently serves as senior reporter for the New Hampshire Bulletin. Thank you for joining us, Anne-Marie. Oh, I'm so glad to be here. Thank you for having me. And Marie, I'd like to uh, wind the clock back to the start of your career. Could you tell us what initially interested you about journalism and how did you get a, gain a foothold in the, in the profession? Well, to be honest, I failed out of many other majors at UNH. I tried to be a history major, environmental science, business. So I had tried everything and I had to fulfill an English credit. So I took a journalism class late, like maybe end of sophomore year. And I really loved it, which surprised me because I'm pretty introverted. But there was something about having the notebook as a shield between me and the world. And I just really loved it. And the great greatest thing about the UNH program is that you have to do an internship for a whole semester. And that just gives you clips that you wouldn't otherwise get. And I did my internship at Foster's Daily Democrat. And from day one, I was expected to produce content as though I was a reporter, just like everybody else. So it was really great experience. Um, I left that with many clips, but also with now a connection to the seacoast journalism world. And so I felt like I was able to kind of go from one job to another after I graduated. I actually liked it so much at Foster's Daily Democrat that I extended my stay by two months through the summer at no pay, just because I really, really loved it. Wow. Do you have a Rod Doherty story? I do. Um, So I was a very new reporter. I covered a crash on 101, uh, Route 101. It seemed like those were happening all the time. And I went out to the scene. A man died and his dog died. And I came back to the newsroom and I didn't have the dog's name. I tell you, I ask pets' names all the time now. And he said, you need to call back and get the dog's name. And it just felt so trivial to call a family grieving to say, would you mind just tell me what the dog's name was? And so I stalled, said the line was busy. And then he came over and stood there while I dialed the phone. And they picked up. And they actually were grateful that I asked because that dog was a family member And I think reporters will tell you this often, that in these tragic situations, sometimes families don't want to talk to you, but a lot of times they do because they don't want their loved one just to be a name and an age in a story. They want them to be a person. And so I got the dog's name. It was very scary, though. Uh, Rod Doherty was the editor of Foster's Daily Democrat for what feels like a generation And uh, everyone that worked with him has, he made a large impression on a lot of uh, currently working journalists in the state. So, Emory, I'm curious what the New Hampshire journalism landscape looked like when you were starting compared to what it looks like now. I would say that we're in a much better place than we were, but very different place. So when I started, there was the Monitor. It was considered a pretty liberal outfit. There was the union leader on the other side, and there was MUR. There were some smaller papers, but they really dominated the scene, the three of those outlets. And there were some Seacoast papers, but they became kind of regional. So we were in Concord. 
They had the seacoast. Um, there were some small papers up north. And the new union leader kind of covered the whole state at that point. And we kind of stayed in our lanes. Um, and there wasn't a lot of collaboration between the outlets. There was also a viewpoint then that we knew best. You know, reporters, we are the editors. We are the reporters. We know best what you need to know as a reader. And there wasn't a lot of incoming communication from readers, you know, other than a letter to the editor, maybe that is the most you would get for a response on a story. You go out to the scene, you try to talk to people, but it was very much like, what do the officials have to say about this fire or this crash scene? And so it was a really a one-way relationship. And looking back on it, it feels a bit elitist to think, you know, we knew best what you needed to know. And I think now social media has its downsides for sure. But now we are hearing from people much more directly or the citizen journalists, you know, started up. We, I saw that during my career. And at first there was a snobby attitude from our outfit, which is they just don't know what they're doing. They're ruining it. The, the profession, which sounds so snobby now, but I think they added a lot and they made us as sort of legacy um, outlets to really pay attention and think about what do people want to read? And I think we are in a much better place now where we are getting feedback. We hear on Twitter um, what we're missing. We're more, we have just a relationship um, with readers in a very different way. They feel they can re call us up and say, you got this wrong. You need to expand this story. And it's just really nice to be able to be hearing from them, not what we should or shouldn't cover, but that input, like what matters to them? That is really not for us to decide, but we had been for a long time. So I think we're in a much, much better place now. That's a really interesting take on it. And I think it's also interesting that you now are employed by a, an outlet that didn't exist uh, until about two years ago. Uh, the New Hampshire Bulletin is uh, one of the newer outlets on the scene, if not still the newest. Is there anyone newer than the Bulletin right now? I don't think so. We are about to turn two. So I, th yeah, I think we're still the new kids. Welcome to uh, toddlerhood. Well, I guess uh, my first question is, how do you explain the New Hampshire Bulletin to people? Because you must run into people all the time who had, hadn't heard of it yet. So how do you explain it to them? And then what made you uh, want to join? It's hard to sort of, I'm not great at explaining. I've been working on it. So I would say that we are a statewide news outlet. We're a nonprofit. And really what that means to readers is we don't have a paywall. We don't have ads. We're all grant and donor funded. So all of our content is free to read. It's also free for anyone to republish. So that's the nonprofit part of what we do. But we have three reporters in the state house, which is unheard of now for news outlets. So we cover the state house and state agencies, but we are trying to get outside of the rat race, which is this bill passed today or that bill failed. Today, we try to take what's going on in legislature and tell it through people in the communities. Um, for example, you know, if we have a bill about an environmental issue or the governor just proposed axing, you know, three, 34 different professional licenses, my colleague went out, for example, and talked to the foresters, like, what does this mean for you? And so we tried to put the human at the center of these stories. And because we're not filling, you know, a page of news, we don't have to produce four stories a day, five stories like we did at the Monitor. 
we're really producing one really great story a day and then filling in with some smaller pieces. So we all have a little more time um, to work on stories, which is a nice change of pace. So that's not the 30 second elevator pitch I'm supposed to say, but that's as close as I can get. Um, And we are, I'll just add, we are sort of an affiliate kind of of States Newsroom, which is um, a network of these smaller news sites in different states. Um, But, you know, when I thought about joining this, I knew they said it would be independent. And I was like, well, I hope that's true, but we'll see. We never hear from them. They don't know what we're writing. We decided our beats. We named ourselves. We do our own hiring. They really just fund us. So um, it's been a nice relationship. For your second question, how did I get here? Well, I left the monitor around 2014 was just going in a direction I didn't feel very proud of my work anymore because the economic model had really cut the newsroom. We'd gone from maybe 15 reporters to four or five. Um, so you're just churning out content. I was the city editor and the full-time news reporter. I just saw it dying and I just got to a breaking point and it was the hardest decision of my career. And I left and I went back to school and got my master's um, in school counseling And so I became a school counselor for a little while. And that just was too isolating. You know, you're locked in an office in a school. You can't go out and flit about in the community and hear what's going on like you can as a reporter. So I left that field um, and started doing communications for New Hampshire legal assistance um, and freelancing and really thinking, you know, this was the best I was ever going to do again. And then I saw an ad. No, someone sent me an ad for this thing called State's Newsroom opening an outlet in New Hampshire. And I saw it and I wanted to be a part of it. I didn't want to be the editor, but I really wanted to be a reporter. So I applied. I got an interview. I felt like I was going to an offer as an editor. I freaked out and I recruited an editor from the monitor and said, do you want to do this with me? And so he came over. So we launched it um, about two years ago and then we were able to hire two reporters. So we've just made it up as we've gone. And I really, it's really good. I thought the journalism was that at the monitor was kind of the unicorn job of my career. And in the early days it was, but just that model um, is so restrictive that this has been really a nice treat to come to online journalism where there is no paywall. You know, we really can make our content free to anyone to read, which is is really nice. So that's how I got here. How is the bulletin funded then? I know you said you get it through um, states' newsrooms, but where does that funding ultimately uh, originate? So it's um, everything from the $100 my mother writes to state newsroom a year to big organizations like charitable organizations nationally that will give lots of money. So it's very big donors to smaller donors. They're listed on our website. I don't know. I couldn't tell you who they are except for my mother. And they are doing all the funding and they really evaluate us kind of based on how widespread our content is republished um, because the the, the mission for them was Yes, the New York Times and all the big papers, they're covering the White House. That's really well covered. But honestly, your state legislature is probably going to affect your day-to-day life as much more than the White House and state house reporters are becoming extinct. So they really wanted to put reporters in state houses to cover state legislatures um, with an accountability mindset. And then we could provide that content to local papers who can't afford to do that anymore. 
So everything seems to be going well financially. We don't have any sense of you know how they're doing that that way, but we do know that they are expanding. We might be at 35 states now, approximately. And we were in the 20s. We were like among the 22nd outlets to launch. So it's really been growing. But it really comes from those large, large organizations that fund um, journalism. It amazes me that they can fund so many outlets. Um, I think it's encouraging that people believe journalism still matters. But that's where our money comes from. What role do you see outlets such as the Bulletin playing as we continue to see this local uh, journalism scene evolve? I had said a few minutes ago that I think we're in a really great space in this state. And that's, you know, largely it started with Melanie Plenda and the collaborative. I mean, that was a really brilliant move in the state. It brought together all these newspapers to share content, to be partners in informing the public in the way the Associated Press used to, in a way, but they have been decimated and that wasn't there anymore. And no one newspaper can do it anymore. You just don't have the resources. And so now we have all of this statewide content, no matter where you live, you are now going to know about, you know, what's going on in Pittsburgh or on the seacoast. And that sharing, just that, that, that model for sharing content, I think is so important because it allows all outlets to stay afloat, I think. And then I see us supporting that mission as well. And I think we've gone from the idea that we're all competing for readers and competing just among our outlets to being more of a partnership. You know, sometimes we'll get a call from the Valley News and they'll say, are you covering this today? If you are, we're going to use our reporter to do something else. And that's exactly the idea, to increase journalism rather than try to go to war and get the last remaining readers. So I, th- I think So I can't say enough about Melanie pulling that off early on. And I think that's opened the door for this mindset that we are all kind of a team in this together. I'd like to ask you about a story you published on March 6th about the death of uh, a five-year-old in Laconia a few years ago. The death was ruled a homicide, yet no charges have been brought. Could you tell us how you came to learn about the story involving Dennis Vaughn? And how did you go about gathering information for your report? That's one of those stories I was able to tell because I am at a place at the Bulletin that took over a week to pull that together to do the interviews because it was so comprehensive. And so it's just so much significance there. So I had gotten a call saying there's something going on in Laconia. People are hanging signs for this child who had been murdered. You know, we've heard about recent murders of children, but this name was new to me. So I started asking around and I couldn't believe that this case had not gotten the attention of the other cases. So I took that tip to look, you know, what's going on in Laconia. I talked to the people doing the fundraising. I talked to the people doing kind of the public awareness campaign with signs. And then the key really was finding the lawyer who's representing the mom of Dennis against DCYF. And that was important because this case is both the murder of a child, but also a failure of a system that we've seen again and again. So the lawsuit really laid out, you know, 25 incidences of DCYF calls to this grandmother's home. She was, you know, had guardianship of those, the children, Dennis and his siblings. And so that lawsuit, when, when you do have a lawsuit, you have quite a 
bit of protection as a journalist to write something. If you just write, someone said this way, I failed these kids. You can't do that. You could be sued. A lawsuit gives you that financial, uh, that um, legal grounding. So that was really helpful. But I also didn't want it to be just another DCYF story. I wanted to write about this other piece, like why was this child forgotten? Um, and so I was able to just, you know, I called the police department. I took a couple calls to get them on the phone because the attorney general's office will not talk about this case and they're leading the investigation. So I was able to get the chief on the phone, chief of Laconia, and to my surprise and delight, he said, we're frustrated too. Like we can't get the AG's office to move on this. And then the mayor of Laconia said the same thing. So I think that that just gave the story a little more power. It wasn't me and the mom saying what's going on here. It was the community and the people raising the money, people doing these signs. They did not know this child, but they felt this is a child who's been forgotten. So it was doing a lot of interviews. I talked to the Manchester police chief because I think anyone will remember him standing up there and really leading the publicity campaign for finding Harmony Montgomery and then finding her killer. And he has been a real model of, I'm going to do this if no one else is going to do it. And so that contrast, I think, between Manchester and Laconia was striking to me. So it was a lot of pieces. It was police dispatch calls, lawsuit interviews. It was one of the hardest stories I've had to do because there was, I just, to the end, could not believe that the AG's office has not moved on this and has not said anything. And I, I was sure that I was missing something or getting something wrong. But the truth is they're just not talking about it and they won't say why. You did a really good job of presenting this one incident in sort of a um, an ecosystem of municipal and state agencies, also relating it to other incidents that had parallels uh, in recent history. What did you want the readers to take away from that? I wanted readers to also ask why this child has been forgotten. What is it? Is really justice so subjective that if this one city doesn't stomp its feet and make the AG's office do something, that victim goes unnoticed? Is it really just that? Is there more to it? Is the AG's office, you know, holding back? They want something more than they have to bring charges. So it felt like a government accountability story to me. And, and just who gets the attention and who does not? These children who were killed have very similar lives. They were DCYF involved. Calls had been made. Complaints had been found unfounded. So there are a lot of similarities there. So it just really did raise the question, is justice really that subjective? Does it depend on where you live and what your, your local agency will do, how much they will push uh, the attorney general's office to be more public and investigation? I wanted to ask one specific thing about an interview that you did with the grandmother of Dennis Vaughn. Dennis was in his grandmother's care uh, when he sustained the injuries that um, ended his life. You were able to interview her over Facebook Messenger, which I thought was an interesting avenue to get an interview. Could you tell me why that was the means for an interview? And did you have any hesitation for using that interview uh, in the story? Yeah, that, that, that was, that's a good question. It was a significant part of my evaluation. So I, the grandmother's name is Sherry Connor. 
fairly common name. You you try to put that into Facebook. You'll get a lot of Sherry Connors. I did message a bunch of them and say, I'm looking for this Sherry Connor from Laconia. I had I didn't get the right one. Um, and so I found out that Sherry Connor uses a different name and sells things on Facebook Marketplace. And so I found one of her paintings, a painting of an elephant um, that she was selling. She's up in Maine. I don't have her address, so I could not knock on her door. I could not call her. So I sent this message in response to the ad for the painting. And I said, will you talk to me about this case? This is what I'm writing about. This is my phone number. This is my email. However, I can talk with you. I'd like to do it as soon as possible. And then she blocked me. Because uh, I went in to check to see, oh, did she respond? And suddenly I couldn't find her, but a colleague could find that elephant painting listing. So she clearly had blocked me. And I thought, well, at least I've tried. I know I found the right person. I don't have to keep bothering Sherry Connors of the world. And then the next day I opened up Facebook Marketplace just to see if she had responded. I had probably 10 messages from her. I was really surprised by that. And so we started a conversation you know, I told her what I was writing about. I got over 90 messages from her by the end of three days. And a couple of concerns. One is she was using a fake name. So I wanted to be sure I was talking to Sherry Connor of Laconia, the subject of DCYF complaints. Um, and so I would just put questions in there. Are you Sherry Connor using this name? Um, and she, she confirmed. And I knew from the details of what she was saying, she was the right person. She would not get on the phone with me but she agreed to answer all my questions by Facebook Messenger. That was the only way she would do it. And so we just had a three-day conversation, you know, me trying to understand what she was doing at that time, what her understanding is. She confirmed for me that she suspected she was a suspect. She confirmed that she stopped talking to the authorities. She had really shocking statements to say about the care of the kids there was lots of LOLs in there, um, and I asked her what she meant by that, and she wouldn't answer. So I, I did leave those out. But I'm kind of glad that we talked that way because I think this could be a legally complicated interview. She could sue me. Has she said this much to the attorney general's office? Are they going to come for this information? And I have it all in her words. So it wasn't ideal in many ways. I would have preferred to talk to her face-to-face. But I do have a really solid record of what she said to me. So in that way, going forward, I'm, I'm really glad that I have that protection, that it's her words quoted directly um, from her. So I've not interviewed anyone through Facebook Marketplace, but it worked out in this case. This story is playing out in a media context very different than it might have 20 or 30 years ago. True crime as a genre is very popular, especially in podcasting. There's a related cottage industry of amateur investigators who leverage social media to bring attention to unsolved cases. It's become clear that there's an interaction between journalism, true crime entertainment products, amateur sleuths, official investigators. How did you think about the effect your work might have on the outcome of this investigation? Or do you even not think that's something journalists should be considering? Um, I think it's natural to wonder that. Um, I didn't think of this as a true crime. I'm not going to name anyone, but I'm not sure the suspect's pool is very big here. That's all I'll say about that. Um, You know, the AG's office did talk about this as a domestic situation. So I wasn't thinking about a whodunit. Um, In this case, I really wanted to look at 
what does justice mean and how do you get it and why didn't this child get it and really sort of interrogate that process of step-by-step what happened, why haven't you asked for any information since 2020, why did you only put out three press releases, why did you never circulate this around social media to get feedback? If you can't charge it, why? If you haven't charged it, why? So I really thought about it in terms of holding government accountable. You know, why are you doing this? I don't expect it will become the next serial. Um, funny, the starter of serial worked at the Conquer Monitor with me. So that's where um, she hails from. And so I, I didn't really view it that way. I, I was, um, I tend not to think about my stories going national because they don't. It was really you know, local, look, thinking about local journalism, I have not ever left the state because I do like that level of reporting, that very local level. You have access to people you wouldn't otherwise. So for me, it was really a government story and a justice story. Like, why not this kid? Why all the others? And why not this kid? What sort of feedback have you had since this story was published? A few things. My journalism friends um, recognize that it was a amazing opportunity to spend some time in a story because we don't often get that. So they were glad to see the bulletin supported that. I've heard, you know, secondhand through the mom that she was glad that someone did ask government questions that she's not been able to get answers to. And then just some readers have, you know, said it's important to ask why and why haven't they heard about this person before? So, so far, I mean, one reader said, if you can't read the whole story, because it is long, read this, at least this part. So long form journalism sometimes doesn't get a huge audience, but people are getting the point, you know, even from reading a little bit or listening to the audio of the dispatch calls that, you know, this was a real person that a lot of people were saying, hey, these kids are in danger. What's going on? And so I think it was really important for me to have those primary documents in there, to have his death certificate linked, to have the police dispatch calls linked, to have the lawsuit linked so that it wasn't me saying, this is how I interpret this. It was me giving you the primary documents and you decide. So those were really my focuses on that story is like at the very local level, here's what you need to know. Because that's why we cover state houses. People at the local level can have huge influence on their government. And so that sort of was my mindset as I worked on this story. What advice would you give someone who's interested in starting a career in journalism right now? To not be scared off by a fear that there's no jobs. Um, I think we're increasingly seeing opportunities to do journalism in some way. There's lots of ways to do it. TV, radio, podcasting. I mean, that was not true when I got into it. So we're really in a great state of journalism right now. Try to do an internship if you can. We have two interns coming on here. One is a journalism student. One has never taken a journalism class, not sure they want to go into journalism, but want to see what it's like. And so she's going to spend six weeks with us, shadowing us, writing some stories on her own. So really try to get in a newsroom call up a reporter and say, can I talk to you? How would you, how did you get into this? Are there any opportunities for freelance? Can I come and shadow you? I think the journalists in this state are very generous with their time and they're really collegial. So I think wherever you are, try to find a journalist that you think is doing the kind of work that you might be interested in and just call them up and say, can I talk with you? Can I have coffee with you? Can I come into the newsroom and just spend a day with you? Are you working on anything right now that you'd like to preview? 
Oh, I'm trying to look at um, the governor just put 1.4 million in the budget to do more border patrol at the northern border. We have 58 miles of border on along Canada. That's a pretty small area. So I'm really curious to see what that activity is there and contrast that with $1.4 million. I mean, we've ever only gotten about $180,000 from the federal government. So we're putting a lot of resources into this. And really, what is that doing? Is that necessary? So I'm trying to look at that, trying to fold in a trip to the border, I hope. So that's sort of next step. That's another. I have to now let my colleagues have a turn to do something more long form and pick up the slack a bit. But that's something that's on my my very long list of story ideas. That's that's very interesting. I, I'll look forward to seeing that story when it comes out. Thank you. Don't don't look too soon, but hopefully. Okay. <laughs> well, maybe you can postpone that border trip until springtime. Yes. yes. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Anne Marie. It was really a pleasure to t- speak with you. Oh, it was so nice to talk to people who are passionate about journalism. I'm glad you're doing this, and thank you. The Granite Beat is a project of the Granite State News Collaborative in partnership with the Laconia Daily Sun. We record at the Lakeport Opera House, and our theme music is composed by Bob McCarthy. Thanks also to the Marlon Fitzwater Center at Franklin Pierce University for editing and other support.